Welcome to the Farm Answers Podcast. The Farm Answers Podcast takes a deeper look at projects funded by the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture's Beginning Farm and Rancher Development Program and how they are reaching beginning farmers and ranchers. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the Farm Answers Podcast. Hello, how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing pretty good today. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So um, I have Michael Carter Jr. who works with or works for uh, Carter Farms LLC. And can you just uh, let our listeners know a little bit about Carter Farms? Uh, what do you do there and who do you serve? Uh, well, Carter Farms is my family's century farm uh, in Orange County, Virginia. Um, and we serve social disadvantage, new beginning and better farmers, uh, and getting to agriculture and finding niche markets within agriculture. Very good. It's a century farm. So what year was it founded? I'm guessing it's over a century now. Correct. It's, uh, November 5th, 1910. My great, great grandparents, Jefferson Davis and Catherine Walker Shirley purchased our property. Uh, and then we have another property about, uh, three or four miles from that particular property that started April of 1915. There were two different plots that were um, in our family that are over 100 years old. Wow, yeah, two century farms. That's really impressive. And how, how did y'all transition to working with beginning farmers? Because I'm guessing when it started out in the early 1900s, your family was, they were farming, they were growing food. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I'm, I haven't talked to anyone else on the podcast that they're like, oh, this is my family's farm and we do outreach. <laughs> it's kind of a, um, you know, and I wasn't there back in the 1910s or 15s. Uh, I was, <laughs> but, You'll do uh, your best to retell the story. I understand. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, but during that time, there were several farms in that area. Uh, and because of the level of discrimination they faced, they were community farms for their families, uh, as well as for the larger community. My, grand, my great-great-grandparents had about nine children. Um, and then my, grandma, my great-grandmother had 12 children. So you can imagine the type of miles you had to feed uh, when that came around. Mm-hmm. Children had children. Uh, so it became almost a land bank and a resource for everyone in terms of uh, gathering and also supplying, supporting each other, especially during the depression um, where land and growing your own food was the critical aspect of keeping your costs down and kind of making things living without too much suffering um, because of the depression. Um, and we've kind of moved into, I've kind of moved into outreach and technical assistance and support. Um, just my, I'm a son of an agriculture teacher. So education was kind of in my blood, even though I didn't know it was. Um, and I found that, you know, most farmers either didn't know what to do. A lot of new farmers didn't know what to do. And a lot of older farmers, you know, had trouble in the markets. Mm-hmm. So I made a different type of opportunity for them to create a niche in the market. Because if everybody comes to the market, you know, in July with tomatoes, Right. The price of potatoes are going to be extremely low. And you know, economics really 101, baby, you got it. Find demand. I was an economics major. major so, yeah, I, yeah. So, that's that's always intrigued me. Is like, you know, I've always seen, you know, you see that every market you go to mm-hmm. have, you know, everybody's growing the same thing. It's got different varieties of the same thing. And many of the times, especially for African American and other social disadvantaged farming groups, if you don't have a relationship to those markets, it's tough to sustain yourself with those markets. The best way to do that is to have a niche 
or to find some other markets to support the markets you're at. Because um, unfortunately, a lot of times, as well, most um, farmers markets, you know, African Americans don't really shop at those places as much. And again, a lot of sure. those things are relationship based, you know, and the average consumer may not have a relationship with the farmer that's there, or they've had relationships with other farmers who are there. So that's going to take away from the money they would spend with Farmer John to spend with Farmer Kwame. You know, and so that's, you know, creating niches, creating, you know, specialty crops that are uniquely grown. We focus a lot on African crops and Caribbean crops. That's a market that I feel is untapped uh, and is really not catered to well. I like it a lot. Um, yes, I, I always like joke, you have to game the system kind of, right? So how do you find, how do you differentiate? And that sounds like that's exactly what you've done. Okay, so everybody's selling tomatoes in July or everybody has relationships already. So what can I do that's different that's going to make somebody want to come and stop by my booth at the farmer's market? And um, yeah, and you've done it and you've helped other people to be able to do it. And, and you're the first generation that's doing the outreach. Did I understand that correctly? I would dare say my father, I mean, my father was working with Michigan State University Small Farm Outreach Program um, in, in retirement. So he's, he's working there now and I'm, I was working there as well. I'll, I'll stop working there at the end of this month. But um, so yeah, I would say we were first generation Outreach, and I don't think that you know there was a lot of outreach in those years post nineteen sixty eight. It was just survival of the fittest, you know. And if you can make it, you can make it. It was assumed that if you couldn't make it, you just couldn't, you couldn't make it, you know. And that's where the the mantra of you know get bigger has kind of come out in terms of USDA policy and kind of the not even the policy per se, but the perspective. You know, there's survival of the fittest, and those who are going to make it are going to get bigger. Those not are going to fall by the wayside. And for many African American farmers, specifically, um, they were falling by the wayside. So we saw numbers dropping, you know, over 98% over the last 100 years, and definitely over the last 20 years, at least 50% decline in the number of black farmers in the state of Virginia and Maryland. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that actually 98% in the last 100 years. And then what you said about, you know, smaller farms and because of that, right, um, it's been it's been on the decline. Can you tell me then kind that kind of leads into your, your project? Can you tell me a little bit about that? So how do you help these small farms that maybe aren't necessarily going to get bigger? You, you kind of have alluded to it with the differentiation, but can you tell me a little bit about the specifics of your your project that you received grant funding for? Um, well, let me see the specifics without giving out all my trade. Uh, Secrets. Uh, well, so, yeah, but, that's okay too. Or why was it need? I mean, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but yeah, I mean, why was it needed or so very necessary? All the a lot of small African American farmers are exiting the business. There hasn't been a lot of outreach since 1968. Those statistics you gave are just they're 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 shocking. And um, yeah, I had you hear you know what's not you you know what I mean you know like oh yeah I, I bet small farms are going out of business I bet socially disadvantaged farmers are having a harder time but to hear the actual statistics it really hits home can can you talk a little bit more about maybe just why it was needed or why it was necessary if there's other reasons absolutely and I'm gonna yeah it's probably a little longer because uh, I don't know what I enjoy but um let's say 1925 in the state of Virginia 
there was approximately 52,000 social disadvantaged or mostly black farmers in the state mm-hmm. of Virginia, the most in the country. Uh, by the last census in 2017, we're now down to about 1,333. So, from so, so a loss of over 23,000 farms <laughs> in, well, uh, no. in 100 years. Did I do my math right there? No, not you said 52,000, yeah. not 25,000. Oh, dear. <laughs> I need more coffee here. Okay, so a loss of over 50,000 farms. We're tracking yeah. now. Okay, even bigger yeah. numbers. <laughs> so over 50,000 farms and farmers. Um, and the reality is, one, the perception of farming and African-Americans, is very closely associated with the stigma of slavery. And it's okay. pro. So a lot of individuals decided not to go into that because of this the stigma. And you couldn't make money practically. You know, growing up, I would always hit my uncles and anybody else in agriculture, and I was always around farmers saying, we don't make any money. That's never a good marketing <laughs> pitch for anybody, young person. That's Very trying, fair. You know, so, you know, so that's one area. And what, another area that we try to focus on is showing farmers how to make money, showing young people that you can make money, showing them the numbers, showing them opportunities, you know, showing them the, the profit and loss statement so they, people can see this, you know, because if you don't show it to them, they really can't appreciate what they're trying to do. And as a student of agriculture, as agriculture, agriculture econ major, um, I ran away from agriculture as soon as I got the opportunity because I no one ever showed me how to make money. So I ran to Washington, D.C. and other places because I could see how to make money there. You know, someone would pay me $15 an hour, $20 an hour to do whatever job. Yeah. That's from a young person's appeal. You're going for what you can earn money doing. So if you say, I don't make any money doing this, and people are coming in, working 12 hours, sweaty, dirty, in the sun, it's like, okay, I'm not, that, that seems like, you as, know. As a farm kid myself, I'm doing a lot of head nodding here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Who wants to work for no money, very hard, and little pay when there's other jobs in the city that pay much better. So, yes. And then historically as well, you know, with, you know, like the New Deal measures that came out after that, you know, most farmers cannot qualify for social security they can qualify for it to have actual a farm business or a business that happens to be a farm but if they're just a regular farmer they don't qualify for security they don't qualify for unemployment tax um which also really affected that next generation you know post 19 post depression of getting into agriculture and this has a trickle effect because you ultimately are inspired by what your family does in most cases and you see success you try to duplicate that success if you see failure, you try to run away from that failure. And that's where we're, you know, we saw a lot of failure in a lot of different ways after 1968 with integration. Uh, a lot of support that we got from the black community switched over to the larger majority community, white community, in terms of supporting farmers, buying from the grocery store that didn't buy from black farmers, um, buying from restaurants that didn't buy from black farmers, you know, going to, you know, getting catering done from other people or other places that didn't, you know, buy from black farmers. So, it, you know, we got, you know, over the last 40, 50 years, we've been really neglected uh, across the board. Uh, so what we've tried, what are we trying to do is reestablishing one, the image of the farmer, adding a certain level of dignity and honor to that occupation. And our dignity, honor, and the, the ability to earn income. You know, it's the reason why many of wealthy individuals own a whole bunch of farmland. There's tremendous tax breaks in it. There's tremendous other things in it that it, and farming when done correctly and not necessarily on larger scales is profitable uh there's so many di- different benefits to land so we do a lot of training in terms of um 
understanding the value of land, you know, because there's a big issue, especially amongst African Americans, uh, with air properties. But the biggest thing with air property is understanding the value of the property. When you understand the value of the property, you can have a better understanding of why you need to keep the property in the family, you know, and then you can find other programs within USDA, within other agencies uh, that provide conservation easements and other programs to help you understand that you can actually pay the taxes on it with some of these programs, that you can actually earn money by just keeping the land uh, in the family uh, as forest land, as pasture land, as uh, crop land. And there's opportunities here, and that's what we try to expose to our, a lot of our clients as well, uh, is those opportunities. And these are the, both farmers and this, as well as landowners. Um, in addition, really, you know, and lastly, in terms of finding uh, homes for African crops. Uh, again, this is to me a big opportunity for a lot of our farmers that we work with. Um, because in the Washington, D.C. area, it's the second largest concentration of continental Africans in the country, with New York City being the first. So there's a whole community of continental Africans who can't find foods that they would normally get from home. So you and have having, a market. You have a well-defined have, market. Yes. If you uh, grow it, they will eat it. They will eat it. And we have to reestablish the price. And, you know, we're just trying to keep, we want to grow it, but also provide the proper price to make sure that the value for the farmers is really um support it uh, yeah they got to make money at their business right you don't stay in business if you can't um absolutely. if you can't make a little bit of money uh niche crops that you know hold value that we can actually you know charge a little more or charge this value proper value for um because also within most continental african societies you know negotiation is part of their culture mm. and that doesn't work well for farmers <laughs> it, yeah, it doesn't always work well. You got to stay above your break even and then a little something extra to take home, right? To pay your bills. So, yep, I understand. So, yeah, how do you mitigate that? Well, we um, we have to usually be hard and kind of steadfast. And then um, we've been working, you know, a little bit with stores and kind of saying, okay, this is our price. Take it or leave. We can't come in with, you know, we, I, I come in, I drive two hours to get to your store. Expecting you this price, you tell me, oh, that's too much. We can't do that. <laughs> you know, but uh, we also have, you know, worked with a couple of other partners, uh, namely 4P Foods and Airmark. Airmark oh, yeah. Airmark is a huge food service distributor. Right. Yes. Yeah. You know, that would be a good one. To, yeah. That'd be great to be working so, with them. Well, so we're working on a trial. Well, we're presently in a trial basis of providing some of these specialty crops that we're growing for the chefs at University of Virginia for the dining halls and incorporating the education component of it, educating the students about these crops, as well as having the chefs create meals and recipes from these crops and being able to tell a longer story. Um, but also, Airbrock has the ability to pay a little more. <laughs> sure. Their, mar their margins can be, you know, a little less on, on, on their end where farmers can get a little bit more money. And then they also can buy volume. So it becomes a win-win-win for all those involved. Uh, the students are educated and inspired by having a new and different meals, you know, meals and recipes and cultural understanding. Um, the farmers are inspired by, you know, being able to have a market in which they can buy wholesale, ideally at retail prices. Uh, in addition to having Airmark be able to meet the needs of those consumers and have a very happy customer base and seem like they're, you know, very much trying to bridge that gap. Uh, between some of the social Spanish farmers and the larger commun uh, community. 
And ideally, I've chosen kind of working with them because they can set the bar for others. They can make props that are normally not popular, popular. Mm-hmm. Get people more accustomed to them or they, familiar with them. They can increase the demand and the familiarity in a much broader way. When I take things to African stores or Latino stores, you know, it's only that market that really appreciates that, which is all well and good, but it's still a very limited market. Um, you know, so, as, you know, you start to see, you know, more people eating something like Callaloo uh, or okra uh, or uh, gotch bonnet peppers or uh, uh, sweet potato greens. You know, it, it helps increase the demand of those products, which means increases the demand. You know, ideally, increase the demand, supply stays about the same, means price goes up. I understand. I, as you've been talking, I'm like, you are a very good, I'm an economist too by training, and I'm like, you are a very good economist. You may be a better I, one than me. I, <laughs> No, you're, I mean that sincerely. I'm like, dang, dude, whatever you're, um, it seems like whatever you're working on, you're really good at kind of tearing it apart, figuring out how it works and then how you can kind of build it and make it successful, but then also replicate that model many, many times so that others can be successful too. It's, um, you know, studying at econ, it makes, you, it makes me want to deconstruct things, like you said. And then figure out what the problem is, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, and outreach is like, okay, well, I've done focus group farmers. I've talked to farmers. They're saying they have trouble with markets. And this market is saying they want, want some things from these farmers, especially after um, the murder of George Floyd. I had so many calls from different places saying we want to buy from black farmers, yada, yada, yada. And we couldn't get to agreement. And I couldn't understand that, but I didn't deconstructing it and kind of putting the laws of supply and demand in, we were able to at least work toward um, some level of agreement and creating a, uh, a model that I think is working right now. It's working pretty well. Not perfect. You know, it's still a lot of building trust on both sides. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, most farmers that are somewhat distrusting of the government, of the this general structure. Um, so, you know, you kind of, you know, want to get, especially you also distrusting of new markets at times because that's a lot of risk that you end up taking. You have to plant a seed on a crop that you had never heard of and, you know, trusting that it's going to mm-hmm. sell. You know, that takes a lot of trust. There's a lot of, you know, that's not just planting the seed. That's labor for the next six to eight weeks, two months, three months that you have to put into that crop that you're hoping has a market. Even if you have a scenario where you're doing the tomatoes, at least you know you better sell your tomatoes for a dollar a pound. You know, yes. at the end of the day. You need to get one... four or five or six dollars a pound. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the craziest parts of farming, right? Like you're going to put a crop in, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get paid ahead of time or that you'll be able to sell it. Hopefully, probably, right? But especially if you're growing specialty and niche crops, it, it is more of a question mark. So, yeah, this all, what you're saying makes total sense. Um. Uh, really quick, can you tell me just a little bit? So, you, what are you doing specifically for the beginning farmers? You're helping them to find different markets. Is it um, mostly kind of like business and economic um, expertise, or, or is there some technical assistance tied into that? Can you tell me just a, a, a little bit about that? We do everything. Um, I find, I mean, you need to know, even if you're not doing it, you need to know certain things. We do technical assistance in terms of providing support. Um, doing numerous work at our farm related to food safety, uh, marketing, basic agricultural production, 
financing, um, pre-harvest and post-harvest realities, um, estate planning. Um, That's very important, especially with what you shared with me about trying to keep families, you know, uh, or families trying to keep farms in the family. That's a really important one. It's been, you know, estate planning has been how I've been able to allure in a lot of new participants in the program is this people will call me and say, I have this land. What can I do with it? Oh, we're doing, you know, we're leasing this land here, but what can we do with it? And, you know, we're, we're able to talk out some ideas. Uh, they, they become farmers. Many of them at least got their farm numbers. Um, introduce them to, you know, equipment programs with RCS. You know, we're, we're you know, showing them the whole gamut at least as much as possible. We've worked with USDA in terms of our urban farmers. We have a lot of urban farmers who want to do something in the basement, something in the bedroom, something, you know, in their small backyards. You can do microgreens. You can do potted plants, you know, nuances of, you know, and really changing the lens of what an agriculturist and a farmer looks like. That you don't need, you know, a John Deere and 400 acres of land to be a farmer. That you just need the heart and the vision and the desire to make, you know, uh, you know your, back, your, your back porch patio, you know, a profitable farm at the end of the day, you know, with the right crops and the right understanding. So, we, you know, we also just, you know, we, we provide... Uh, a lot of cultural and historical workshops. And, and along with that, uh, this past weekend, we did a beginner farmer uh, field day uh, at our farm. And we had salsa dancing lessons mm-hmm. and to um, build your own banjo, uh, moon balances. Because we want to bring the young people in as well, the younger people in terms of four, five, six, seven, you know, 10, 12. Because they, they, I want, when they come to the farm, I want them to have an experience of, I had so much fun at the farm. Those things, the seeds that you implanted those children early on, even those young people early on, and, you know, younger people, 25, 30. And, you know, psychologically, they're thinking, you know, farm, good time. Yes. I was youngster. I saw farm, hayfield, not a good time. Right. Farm, castration of bull, not a good time. (laughs) (laughs) We had some similar experiences. Yeah, yeah. But my kids are having the experience you're describing, which is it's the farm. It's fun. I enjoy it. There's things happening here. I think that's really beautiful that that's what y'all are are trying to do. And um, your outreach sounds really extensive. I feel like we've just hit the tip of the the iceberg as you've um, been talking about all these different programs and kind of laying out uh, why this was so necessary and the the need for the program. Um, If I am a new farmer or socially disadvantaged or veteran farmer, how do I tap into these programs? Reach out to me, uh, carterfarmsva at gmail.com. I get a lot of random calls and emails. Uh, I got your name from X, Y, and Z. I got this land or I want to do this. How can I, you know, can you help me out? Sure. You know, and that's kind of, you know, how I like it. It's not, you know, not, nothing formal. I find mm-hmm. myself in like a um, full-fledged farm uh, support desk. <laughs> you know, it I sounds do. that way. It sounds like it's a lot of one-on-one help, which is, I mean, that's sometimes what you what you need. Like classes are great. Field days are wonderful too. But sometimes you just need someone to like help you figure out where can I find the answers or you just need someone that has the answers, right? You well, need you like know. an Alexa in real life or a Siri in real life. <laughs> You need a someone who's going to listen to you, not just give you answers, but guide you. You know, I think sometimes the Siri and Alexa component makes us distant, mm. but it doesn't give us the human element of, "Hey, you can do this." 
yeah. you know, the encouragement, emotional support, or say, hey, take your time. Oh, for, my, for instance, the, the rabbits and the deer ate your stuff. Oh, it ate mine too. These are things you can do about, you know, <laughs> this situation. You've just you know. made me feel a lot better about the bite marks I found in my tomatoes. So thank you. <laughs> Alexa you know, would not do that. You're right. You know, it, it's real because my whole crop this year was pretty much decimated by deer and rabbits. Oh. And talking to other farmers, they could be encouraged by my failure. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. I didn't have the same issue you had. You know, therefore, I feel a little more empowered. I'm a little better than you. I, I, we're, we're doing okay. That if this happened to you, you know, the little thing that happened to me is not as bad. And then, you know, and then guiding them. I get farmers sending me pictures of their crops, you know, at 10, 11 o'clock at night. Like, hey, 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 can you stop? Can you? <laughs> or asking me, <laughs> you know, Sunday morning, hey, I got these vegetables here. Can you find me a market? You know, those are things that, you know, you can't ask Siri for. And it's like, you know, it makes a difference. The one-on-one definitely does. Because the one-on-one experience, when when they communicate to others about, hey, contact Mike, contact Michael Carter, it's another reassurance that hey, he's going to take care of you. It's not just going to a website or a um, social media post or, you know, going to a workshop. It's really personal, one-on-one. I'm going to listen to what you're saying. I'm going to understand what your particular experience is and guide you accordingly. There's never a one-size-fits-all reality. Your program sounds like it's definitely very supportive um, for new farmers and helping them figure out how to grow crops, but also, you know, that that emotional piece that you were talking about or just that reassurance of, hey, you can do this or, you know, hey, let's go a little sore. Hey, yes, there is a market for it. And I don't know, I think I think that's really what people need. And farmers love to learn from other farmers, too, as you know, and you are a farmer, so I don't know. It sounds it sounds fantastic. Um, let's see. I thought I had one more last question for you. So if I'm in Virginia, I should give Michael Carter Jr. an email or check out your website. And what's um what do you think will be next for your program in terms of engaging with beginning farmers? Do you have any you know grand ideas or programs that you guys are starting to launch right now? Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm glad oh, you Oh, yes. You're an idea <laughs> guy. I love it. Yeah, I am an idea. We're doing a conference, a social disadvantaged farmers conference in Virginia in November 4th through the 6th called the Real Conference, uh, Racial Equity and Agricultural Lab. Uh, that'll be in Richmond, Virginia, uh, November 4th to the 6th. We'll be doing a couple of job fairs down in Virginia Tech with Manners, uh, which is the Minorities in Agriculture and Natural Science, Natural Resource Sciences organization because we want to also provide for the young people that's in school opportunities in this occupation you know and bringing them you know bringing it to them where they don't necessarily have to keep the outside world and folks who actually want to employ social disadvantaged folks that want to be or you know african-americans latinos minorities who want to be in this particular field and they'll be in those areas that you don't necessarily think about natural resources so we have Aramark down there We'll have some engineering firms down there. We'll have some construction firms down there who do environmental sciences and have to incorporate that in their, in their work. You know, uh, a McDonald's franchisee who has to use environmental sciences when they put up new locations. You know, it's showing them there's so many different opportunities within agriculture. Uh, and then we'll be doing a, we did a farm tour, a very small farm tour with Aramark and UVA chefs last, uh, last June. Uh, so we're looking cool. down to expand that 
so they can go visit the farms and hopefully the chefs will actually be able to cook on the farms. You come up with ideas about, you know, you know, just have that real world reality. We're trying to bridge this gap. There's, you know, this this particular tour we did with the chefs, it helped me know that they don't, you know, they're chefs, but they don't know much about the food industry. So we passed the mm. industry rather. So, you know, we passed, you know, those fields of cornfields. And they were like, how come, you know, you all aren't big like these guys right here? And they didn't understand the concept of, you know, the row crop farmer versus the small vegetable crop farmer. That you're not getting your produce from, you know, these row crop farmers. You're yeah, not getting vegetables corn. don't grow in rows like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's you're different. Not getting, or you're not getting soybeans. You're not getting raw wheat or, you know, to search your, your, your folks. This is going to cattle. This is going to processed foods, et cetera. So, you know, the educational part of it made them much more engaged, uh, as well as tying against a lot of the history. Uh, and this call it, cooperation with you know uva has been extremely productive over the last you know our tour was in june we, they already have done a i think last thursday they did a um a demonstration with some of the vegetables that we grow for their students they're doing uh they're planning another one in september uh and then one every thursday following that where they just bring in these different crops these specialty crops cook them up share it with it with the you know with the students there and this they're really engaging it and i like the fact of that because then I did the trickle down effect. Once they're doing something, the smaller schools, the HBCUs, the 1890s, you start to follow suit. Um, UVA is a pretty large university. I want to say largest, second largest in the state of Virginia. Probably Tech maybe right above them or right behind them. I don't know. But, you know, they set the bar. And once we set the bar with some of these activities, I'm very anxious with the, the opportunities that's coming down the pike. So 2023, it's going to be amazing. We're going to engage a lot of farmers. We're going to engage a lot of new, new markets. Uh, we're going to do a couple of very special events with the African markets, uh, with uh, some we call it jollof wars. We bring in folks to cook jollof rice at our farm, and you know have almost like you know a cooking competition. Uh, and jollof wars within West Africa are very very contentious. <laughs> It sounds like fun. It so, sounds really innovative. Like, I, and like, I'm just like, you got ideas, man. You're like, boom, 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 boom. 2023 yeah. is going to be a great year. I like it. Yeah, I we, we have a lot of ideas. You, that was just a few of them. We have, yeah, we do a lot of, yeah, we, yeah. You're busy. You run all day long. You, I, I yeah, I'm, I don't, I have like a million more questions about like who gets all this work done and the staffing, but we probably got to wrap up here. Um, so check out Michael's um, website, Carter Carter Farms, and you guys are in Virginia. If you're a beginning farmer in the Virginia area, uh, reach out to him and you'll get some great one-on-one -on -one technical assistance, but also just that support. Um, go out and, and visit the farm if they have field days or um, look for some of these other, you know, educational opportunities or outreach. I want to thank you again um, for joining us today. And do you want to give your Facebook? Facebook, you can find us at Carter, Carter Specialty Farm. Carter Specialty Farms on Facebook. Yeah, uh, Michael Carter Jr. on Facebook and then Instagram, uh, Carter Farms, VA, as in Virginia. So C-R-T-R-F-A-R-M-S-V-A. Um, and I think that's the only social media we do. I don't do any Twitter and that. Um, oh, that's perfect. So yeah, those are the yeah. All right. Very good. Well, thanks for joining us. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Farm Answers podcast. 
This episode was hosted by Betty Burning, produced by Curtis Monken and Jeff Reisdorfer. Listen and subscribe to the Farm Answers podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major streaming platforms. Tell your smart device to play the Farm Answers podcast. To learn more about this USDA NIFA BFRDP project and other projects, visit farmanswers.org. The Farm Answers podcast and farmanswers.org are funded by the United States Department of Agriculture, National Institute of Food and Agriculture, and are a product of the Center for Farm Financial Management at the University of Minnesota. 